The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Bev and I were blessed to go for the last uh, two weeks to Kenya, Rwanda, in a short respite in Belgium on the way out. In Kenya, we were invited to be uh, speakers at the Alarm Conference where they gathered uh, their leadership from eight different nations. And so we were outside Nairobi about 30 miles and were privileged to uh, present for a day there. And I say that to remind you that your praying and your sending impacted eight nations two weeks ago. So by God's grace, by you sending us and to his glory, you impacted eight nations. So it, it was quite a privilege to be there, and uh, uh, we we were uh, literally ministered to way more than we gave, as you can imagine, in a setting like that. We get to eat meals with these folks and hear their stories, and uh, Africans are traumatized. I mean, they have been through so much. Uh, in Rwanda, this is Kenya, but in Rwanda, I'll show you a film in a second, uh, 90% of the young people in Rwanda uh, either experienced or saw death within their family back in the 1990s. So just a, a, a time of real heartache and uh, traumatization for all those folks. And so the reality of what's taking place there is really difficult. Secondly, uh, we finished the conference in Kenya, had a great time there with all the alarm staff. These are leaders of different nations, eight different nations. Uh, most of these people were able to do it in English, which was rare for us on overseas travel because uh, most of these folks are highly educated individuals and we sat and learned a lot from them. From there, we went to our sister church in Kigali, uh, actually went to Kigali, Rwanda, went to our sister church in Basse, which is an hour outside of the capital, Kigali. If you were with us three weeks ago, you met uh, our brothers from Ukraine, Pavel and uh, Kolya, but you also met Salafiel and Jean Baptiste, who Salafiel is a senior pastor of the, uh, the church that we have adopted there. When we got there, they do a welcome. So let's roll that video and you can crank it up a little bit. Uh, this is uh, how they welcome you to their village. Uh, we would be the white people there. That would be us. Uh, they laugh about that all the time. Uh, I'm the big Mazungu is the, Itali- uh, the uh, Swahili word for white man, so I'm the Mazungu. This is their, uh, we greet you in the parking lot, they greet you on the dirt road that leads up to the church. Uh, the young people dressed in black and white were part of a choir uh, from the local high school that was there to have a special program for us. Uh, the village of Basse, where our sister church is, is about uh, six to 8,000 people. They have not had water for three weeks. For the last three weeks, uh, the water system is kaput, not working for various reasons. Uh, What we're trying to do is help our sister church. We want them to be the ones who provide for their community. So we're going to send them uh, money and means to get the water system fixed for the whole village. And that way they can have uh, goodwill towards the people in their community. Rwanda is a beautiful country, uh, fairly undeveloped, as you can see. And uh, But the agriculture and the landscape is beautiful. The side of the mountain is all developed, as you can see, uh, people working and walking all the time. This is uh, uh, our sister church, the building of our sister church, and uh, all those people crammed into that building. And it was uh, an amazing thing to see and behold. Uh, they could dance, we could not. Uh, they could sing, we could not. And uh, they could preach, and we could not compare to them. I mean, it was amazing, really. So Bev went out with the kids to Sunday school classes, the field right there. She took the kids to Sunday school class out in the field and uh, taught them while I preached on the inside. And uh, we just see God's goodness and God's grace. So we learned a whole lot from our brothers and sisters there. One uh, story I'll tell you, we were in Rwanda. We stayed at the Alarm Center. Alarm has a center in Kigali, the capital. So we went out to our sister church, came back, and uh, 
the next morning we're sitting at breakfast with an older gentleman who had been in Kenya with us. And his English was uh, a bit sketchy. And so we're trying to communicate as best we could. Uh, we were the only ones there. And so finally we got to how old are you? And he could give numbers. He was 62. So how many children? He had four children. And uh, what are their ages? And I think they were 24, 22, 20, and 18. Well, the youngest was a teenager, maybe 16. And I joked and said, uh, you're kind of old to have uh, teenagers. And he just got this blank stare in his face. And his eyes welled up. And he said, uh, in 1994, in the genocide, I had a wife and five children. And I came home after being away, and they were all slaughtered. And it was like, what are, what are we doing here? And so we sat with him as he shared his story with us. And uh, I mean, every person we met was just like that. And uh, so we got in a, we had a driver with us and uh, taken around one day and said, so tell us about your life. He was 31. Uh, 20 years ago, he had two sisters, I think, a mom and dad and aunts and uncles. And uh, he was a survivor. He was the only one whose whole family survived, the only one. And I said, what's it like? He said, you know, uh, the hard thing is I don't have anybody to talk to. So I've got a wife and kids, but when I'm excited, there's no one to call other than, you know, his wife, but family he's talking about. There's no one to call, nobody to share with, nobody to be part of that. So we've got dear brothers and sisters there who have uh, experienced a lot. Of, it's, it's the African lifestyle, really. Uh, some of you have lived there and know what it's like. There's a lot of trauma, a lot of heartache, a lot of heartbreak there. And so we need to keep praying for our brothers and sisters. They love us. Uh, they pray for us as their sister church all the time. It's humbling. I mean, you walk in there and, the, and we're so excited to have folks from our sister church here. And they pray for us and they love us. So uh, we need to do the same for them. Amen? Amen. Acts chapter 15. If you have your Bibles or your apps, would you open them or turn them on to Acts chapter 15? One of the things I love is coming back and hearing how well the men did who were in the pulpit the last few weeks, and gosh, it's just a delight to come home to that, and uh, I appreciate that. As we are team teaching now, each taking opportunities to walk you through the Word of God. Acts chapter 15, I'm going to read from the NIV. I usually use New American Standard. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the elder apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way. And as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Father, as we look at grace on trial this morning, as we look at uh, this early doctrine that was hammered out by our forefathers, we're grateful for the efforts that they made. We're grateful, Father, for the debate that took place. We're grateful for the theology that came out of it. And now we ask that you would teach us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Important questions, life-changing questions, questions that will impact us for a lifetime are rare. But when they do come up, we need to word them carefully and we need to answer them cautiously. 
I still chuckle when I read about uh, a life-changing question that Jerry Bridges asked of the lady, Bev, he was dating. Jerry Bridges is president of Navigators. He spoke at our men's conference about three years ago. He said, back in 1980, Barb and I were dating. We'd been together for nine months. We were serious, uh, but we were not yet engaged. We went to a restaurant to take advantage of an early bird special. We had a great dinner. Then the restaurant became quite crowded. It was noisy. It was beautiful outside. So I leaned over in the midst of the noisy clamor, and I asked Bev, would you like to go for a ride? She hesitated for a few moments. Tears filled her eyes. She looked at me, and she said, I would love to be your bride. My eyes opened wide, knowing she had misunderstood what I had asked her. Being a gentleman and not wanting to disappoint her, I accepted her answer, and six months later, we were married. Uh, Young guys, be careful on your dates, the questions you ask. That's the moral of that story, okay? Uh, But, I mean, that was a life-changing question. Would you agree with that? I mean, that was life-changing. Would you like to go for a ride? I'd love to be your bride. The question being asked in Acts 15 is more significant than that. It's not just life-changing here, it's eternally changing. It's a a question that has eternal life in jeopardy. What question could be so important? What question could be so, so insurmountable that we'd have to have a counsel over it? The question is, what is the gospel? How is a person saved? It's the most important question we can ever ask when we're alive on this planet. Those from a Jewish background in verses 1 and 5 could not imagine that it was necessary not to include, that it was not necessary to include circumcision and following the law to be truly saved. And so the first church council took place, grace on trial. The location, Jerusalem. The time, 50 AD approximately. The mood, volatile. The docket reads grace on trial. The background, Paul and Barnabas just returned from witnessing a Gentile revival. They gave their report. As you saw last week in chapter 14, verse 27, it says, and when they had arrived and gathered the church together in Antioch, they began to report all the things that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Most were rejoicing, but some were reticent. They're saying, not quite so fast. And grace is put on trial. In verses 1 and 5, we find, uh, recorded for us there, the, the first dissension about the gospel. It starts with the dissension about the gospel. In verses 1 and 5, the issue is stated. It's very clear. If you look at verse 1, it says, uh, unless you are circumcised according to the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. In verse 5, it's the Pharisees speaking. Verse 1, it's teachers who probably heard about the Gentile revival, and they've come to Jerusalem to say, you've got to add circumcision to the gospel. In verse 5, the Pharisees, the sect of the Pharisees, they are believers. Look at verse 5. These are folks who have believed. These are true believers. They stood up and said, it's necessary to circumcise them and direct them to obey the law of Moses. And so what you see in verses 1 and 5 is the issue stated. Then in verses 2, 3, and 4, the issue is literally debated. If you look at the scriptures, it says in verse 2, a sharp disagreement arose between Paul and Barnabas and these guys. There was a sharp disagreement. They're saying, no, you've got it wrong. The message is not Christ plus anything. The message is Christ alone. You see, what the folks were coming in teaching is it's faith in Christ plus something else. 
Faith in Christ plus observing the law, faith in Christ plus circumcision. Today, it might be faith in Christ plus baptism, faith in Christ plus speaking in tongues, faith in Christ plus church membership, faith in Christ plus tithing, faith in Christ. So people add all kinds of things to the gospel. At stake, at stake in Acts chapter 15 is the question of the gospel itself. What must a man do to be saved? What is the gospel message? Is it Christ plus anything? Or only Christ. Now, before we pick up stones and throw at these folks asking questions in verses 1 and 5, I especially want to focus on the Pharisees in verse 5. If you look at verse 5, it says, There were those who believed from the sect of the Pharisees. I want you to think about their life for a minute. If you were a Pharisee, it meant you had grown up in the traditions of Judaism. You now wore the robe of the Pharisee. But all of a sudden, this man Christ comes on the scene. He claims to be the Jewish Messiah. And in some of our Pharisees, there arose this civil war of the soul, as one author I read says. A civil war of the soul. Everything they had grown up with, everything they had learned, everything they were about was Judaism. And now Christ steps on the stage of their life and they have this battle. This Jewish man who claims to be the Messiah. And some of them placed their faith and trusted in him according to verse 5. And to them, it was beyond their belief, beyond their wildest imaginations that Gentiles or anyone could come to faith in Christ and Christ alone and not pass through the doors of Judaism first. I mean, it made no sense to them. That's what they had grown up with. And so before we pick up stones to cast at them, recognize they don't have 2,000 years of church history. They don't have the word of God in their hands. They don't have the scholarship and theology of 2,000 years. They're hammering out the truth of the gospel. These Pharisees, I, Lloyd Ogilvie was a, a, an author, pastor, preacher uh, for many years, actually chaplain of the Senate for a while. He writes this about the Pharisees. Think of the Pharisees' training, his immersion in Mosaic law and tradition, his pride in being part of God's chosen people. Live in his shoes as we relive the steps of his rigorous education, the joyous participation he had in Israel's customs. Feel the loving arms of his parents and family as he's circumcised. And they, he's a baby taking to the synagogue to be circumcised in the loving arms of his parents. Catch the awe and wonder as he studied at the feet of an elder Pharisee. Identify with the pride he felt when he became a son of the law at the bar mitzvah, the bar mitzvah son of the law. Then he goes on and says, he became, he becomes one with him as he grew to full manhood and earned the revered status of Pharisee. Consider how he must have burst with satisfaction when he put on the dignified robes of a leader. I remember going to the white coat ceremony of uh, both our son and our son-in-law when they received their, their, their coats in medical school and yeah, how proud you are of that event and what's happening. And he says, imagine a Pharisee getting the robes, The robes of Pharisees, he could walk the streets of Jerusalem revered and honored as a man of great understanding, a man of great training, a religious leader with prestige and power and position. He has it all. Then he hears about Jesus. And he places his faith in the Savior. And one day we're going to have the joy of meeting some of these brothers in heaven. And I can't wait. But he's confused because his whole life he's been involved in Moses' law and the, the, the sign of the covenant being circumcision, just as a sign of the New Testament covenant is baptism, the sign of the covenant of the Old Testament is circumcision. And so he's confused. How can somebody come to faith in Christ alone and nothing else and not keep these other things and not observe the law and not be circumcised? It made no sense to him after all his years of training. 
And so he's dumped into the civil war of the soul. He trusts Christ as a savior. He's saying, there's got to be more for these folks coming in. That's the battle. That's the question. That, that's what's laid out in the first Jerusalem council. There are seven church councils recorded in history for us, seven major church councils, uh, to the Council of Nicaea, Council of Chalcedon. Well, Council of Chalcedon was like in 500 A.D., 520 or 530-something A.D. They're still hammering out in the 6th century the nature of Christ himself. Still hammering that out. We've got thousands of 2,000 years of church history, the Bible in our hands, theologians, seminaries, training. So I admire these guys for hammering out the truth of the word. These are our forefathers. You see, the wholesale entrance of Gentiles into the church was disturbing to them, as threatening to them. They would lose their Judaism, lose their culture, lose their traditions, lose their influence. And so they're trying to sort this out. And onto the stage sets the apostles. Unfortunately, they are wise enough to go to them and say, we must go to the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. This is not something we can settle here. Look at verse 3. So they sent them to Jerusalem. And on the way, they're telling what's happened, and there's great joy, and they go there and report what's happening. And, and so that's where this debate takes place. So there's dissension. The issue is stated. The issue is debated. And uh, I'll say this about uh, the thing that they're arguing over. It's an essential of the faith. It's an essential of the faith. There can be no compromise over what the gospel is. St. Augustine said, in essentials we must have unity, non-essentials we have liberty, in all things we have love. This is the essential of faith. It is worth fighting for. It's worth dying for. It's the essential of the faith. <clears throat> I'm going to talk at the end of my message about how the problem in the church today is we often fight over non-essentials. But this is an essential. There's a debate in verse 2. If you go to verse 7, after there had been much debate, there's more debate when they get to Jerusalem. There's debate in Antioch. There is debate in Jerusalem. This is something worth fighting for. Grace is on trial. There's dissension. Then there's a discussion. The discussion takes place in Jerusalem. We're going to find four people giving reports. Now, if you were going to stay without even reading the text, you're going to say, well, since the disciples are going to have to speak up, which disciple do you think is going to speak first? I mean, out of all, out of the, out of the disciples, who, who always speaks up first? Peter. So look at the text. Peter speaks up first. Look at verse seven. And after much debate, Peter stood up. Peter stood up and he makes three points. His first point is found in verses seven, eight, and nine. He says, let me tell you about my experience. Let me tell you about my experience. Brethren, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to this, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts. How? By faith. If you write in your Bibles, underline, circle the last words in verse 9, by faith. And so Peter stands up and he says, first of all, let me tell you about my experience. I went to the house of a man named Cornelius. God chose me to go to be the mouthpiece of the Gentiles, and I went. And if you back up in your Bibles to chapter 10, we studied this a few weeks ago when I was teaching. In chapter 10, Peter goes to the house of Cornelius, and Peter has a revelation. 
He, he sees Cornelius come to faith. And then in chapter 10, verse 34, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand more than God is, is not the, now that God is not one to show partiality. In every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Verse 43 of chapter 10, of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. And so when, when you look at Peter's experience, he says, I want you to know I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. Cornelius received the Holy Spirit. There's no distinction between him and us. I'm a Gentile. I'm a Jew. He's a Gentile. He came to faith like I came to faith in Christ alone. That's my experience. Secondly, Peter says, his second point is the next verse. If you look at the next verse, in verse 10, he says, Now, therefore, why do we put God to the test? He's saying the problem is we're putting God to the test. Not man, but God. How is that? By placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke referring to the law, which neither our fathers nor we ourselves are able to bear. He says, guys, listen, we were born as Jews. We were born under the law. We studied the law from the time of our birth. We were taught the law. How can we put this yoke of the law upon these Gentiles who, who they're, just getting, they're just getting acclimated? They're just finding out about it. By the way, the law's purpose was not to bring salvation. The law's purpose was to point out their need for salvation. Salvation has always been by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. Read Hebrews chapter 11. And he says, why are we putting this yoke upon them? Why are we putting these non-essentials upon them? Peter argues from his experience. He argues from his theology. And then in verse 11, he makes a bold statement. We believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are also brothers. He stands before the Jerusalem council. Salvation is only one way. It's by faith in Christ alone, period. It's not faith plus anything. So Peter makes the first statement. Second statement made by Paul and Barnabas. So brothers, let us tell you about the signs and wonders that God worked for during this missionary journey. Just as I gave you a brief report about our missionary journey the last two weeks, and, and it's exciting and it's heartwarming and brings us to tears. You, you can imagine, look at what Paul and Barnabas do in verse 12. This multitude kept silent. They were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. The last two weeks, Chase and Dave Tate have, have taught you about what was taking place in the first missionary journey, the miracles that took place, and Paul and Barnabas are relating those and they're standing there with their mouths agape looking and seeing what God has done. So Peter speaks up. Paul and Barnabas speak up. Then finally, James speaks up. James, one of the early leaders of the first century church. This is James, not the brother of John. He was martyred in Acts chapter 12. We saw that Herod had him put to death. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. I would imagine... The Pharisees, when they saw him stood up, had some hope because he had lived with the Messiah. But James speaks up. But before he speaks up, uh, let me throw in a little sidebar. James had a nickname. Do you know what his nickname was? Anybody know James's nickname? Camel Knees. Camel Knees. James was a prayer warrior. You've seen camels. Here's a camel. When we UAE last, uh, back in January, we went to a camel market. And if you've seen camels, they're in their knees. And if you look up close at camels, this is what their knees look like because they're up and down off their knees all the time. James's nickname was Camel Knees. Isn't that a great name? Isn't that a great name? Wouldn't you like to be known as Camel Knees? Uh, there's a lady who attends TBC. Uh, she is the mother of Jimmy Burchell. And while we were in Africa... 
uh, well, we're in Kenya, we received a, a text picture. And uh, Jimmy's mom, Helga, is 90, she'll be 94 years old next month. She lives in the Meridian. And uh, while we were away that, that morning here, Jimmy had gone to check on his mom. When he walked in, this is what he saw. Almost 94 years old. Next time I see her, I'm going to call her Camel Knees. That's a compliment. 93 and 11 months on her knees praying. I told Jimmy and Barbara they were here first hour. You're blessed. You're blessed. Camel Knees. So James speaks up. James has four points. Point number one. God is doing a work, not man. In verse 14, James says, brothers, I want you to know God is doing this, not man. Look at what he says in verse 14. He, he says, Simon has, Simon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. He's saying, this is a work of God, not a work of man, brothers. This is something God is doing, not us. Gentiles are coming to faith. We should be pleased. We should be happy. We should be embracing them. We should be grateful for them. Secondly, he says, the scripture is being fulfilled, not contradicted. The scripture is being fulfilled, not contradicted. This is something we should know about, brothers, because the prophets foretold of it. And so he quotes both Amos and Jeremiah, beginning in verse 15. With these words, the prophets agree, as it is written. After these things, I'll return. I'll rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen. I'll rebuild its ruins. I'll restore it in order that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known form of old. He's saying, I want you to know after this this worldwide witness, there'll be a return to Christ. And I want you to know that these Gentiles are coming to Christ, are coming to faith in Christ. The prophets foretold of what was to happen. And so the first thing we see, James is saying, God is doing a work, not man. The scripture is being fulfilled, not contradicted. Thirdly, the basis of salvation must be grace, not law. Look at verse 19. Therefore, it's my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. Not trouble me, not put the yoke, this burden upon them. They're trusting in Christ alone. And finally, he says, a lifestyle of obedience and love must follow, not license. He he writes in verse 20, he says, but, he, he talks about them turning to Christ. He says, but we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols. They abstain from fornication. They abstain from things that are strangled in blood. For Moses from ancient generations says, in every city, those who preach him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. What he's saying is, following our salvation, there are some guidelines by which we will not cause others to stumble. Gentiles, you can do this, but because it's a stumbling block to Jews, we've been taught this our whole life, we're going to ask you, after you're saved, not to participate in these things. The Jews had a very strict lifestyle, defined lifestyle. These two groups of people were coming together. James saw a need to give a few guidelines, and he says, these things are to follow your salvation. So grace is on trial. There's a decision made about the gospel. If you look beginning in verse 23, they ink what they're saying. Talks about greetings in verse 23. In verse 24, we have heard that some of the number to whom you gave no instruction have disturbed you with words, unsettling your soul. It seemed good to us to select some men to bring to you. Therefore, verse 27, we send to you Judas and Silas. They report these things. Verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to lay upon you a greater burden than these essentials. And so he says, you come to faith, and then there are a few things we're going to ask you not to do, even though you have liberty to do it. And then in verse 
verses 30 through 35, they take that message, a delegation is sent to the Gentiles, and they tell the Gentiles, the Gentiles rejoice. Look at verse 31, when they heard these words, they rejoice because of its encouragement. Verse 33, after they had spent time there, they preached to them, and they sent them away in peace. The message is salvation is by faith in Christ alone. You don't have to get circumcised, and I imagine all the men rejoiced at that. And you don't have to keep the law of Moses. If Christ is enough. Three teachings from this passage, and I'll quit. Teaching number one, and I stated over and over, salvation is by faith in Christ alone. There's a lot of confusion about what the gospel is. The gospel is Jesus. The gospel, the word gospel means good news. The good news is Jesus came, he died for us, he was resurrected, and salvation is his name and his name alone. Amen? No other way. You don't add to the gospel. I love the way Max Licato puts it. Mark it down. God does not save us because of what we've done. Only a puny God could be bought with tithes. Only an egotistical God would be impressed with our pain. Only a heartless God would sell salvation to the highest bidders. Only a great God does for his children what they cannot do for themselves. You see, our cupboards are bare, and he fills them up. Our pockets are empty, and he fills them up. Our heart is depraved, and he gives us transformation. That's the message of the good news. We are beggars coming to the one who can fill everything. Leith Anderson puts it this way, the grace of God is outrageous. By normal human reason, it doesn't make any sense. We should have to do something to get salvation. There's no adequate reason for God to love us that much or to be that generous. Not only does God's grace save us from our sin, it transformed us into his children. How can you add anything to the gospel? When you add anything, if you say it's faith in Christ plus something else, you diminish what our Savior has done for us. Jesus is enough. He's done it all. And because of that, salvation is found in him and him only. Salvation by faith in Christ alone. Remember what Mark Twain said? He said, if heaven went by merit, your dog would get in and you would stay out. Chuck Colson writes these words, All through human history, as far back as recorded time and doubtless before, kings and princes and tribal chiefs and presidents and dictators have sent their subjects into battle to die for them. I mean, that's the way the world is. Presidents don't go to battle, they send troops into battle. Chiefs don't go into battle, they send their troops into battle. And dictators don't go into battle, they send their people into battle. But... Once in human history, there was a king who didn't send his subjects to die for him. Instead, this king died for his subjects. To God be the glory, great things he has done. Our king died for us. Our king gave his life for us. This is the king who introduces the kingdom that cannot be shaken because this king reigns eternally. Amen. Our king didn't send us into battle. He went to battle and died for us. 
That's the gospel. That's why Jesus is enough. First teaching, salvation is by faith in Jesus alone, nothing else. Second lesson, don't make non-essentials essentials. Don't elevate things and fight over things that are not essentials. Make sure if you're going to go to the mat, it's over essentials. I mean, here we see that these dear brothers, these Pharisees were, and these teachers in verses 1 and 5 were adding to it. And they said, no, no, these are not essentials of the gospel. Some of you are saying, Gary, tell me some things you're talking about. What are some non-essentials? Non-essentials. I wrote them down so I wouldn't make a mistake. What version of the Bible do you use? How many of you are using NIV, New International out there? How many of you are using New American Standard? How many of you are using today's English version? How many of you are using the King James Version? Lord, help you. I don't know how you can understand that. <laughs> so who's in sin? Who should we kick out? You know there are churches in our community, if you don't use a King James Version Bible only, it's wrong. Got news for them. I understand the argument. News for them. The New Testament not written in English, written in Greek. And, and th- they would chase the line and say, I understand the argument. Some of you may hold to that. But the reality of it is, if you're going to divide over the version of the Bible you use, let's go learn Greek and Hebrew and argue from there. Membership versus non-membership, which is biblical. I, I mean, uh, how, how do you, you want to go to the mat on that? Uh, we, in times, I mean, we, we have a broad doctrinal statement. That's one area of our doctrinal statement we changed over the years where you can believe, you know, there, there's room for just about any flavor of uh, view of in times in our doctrinal statement. Um, style of music. Style of music is a matter of preference. Lyrics are important. Words are important. Style of music is a preference. Okay to have a preference. More churches have divided over that than any singular issue in, in, in the last generation. It's tragic, dividing over worship. Isn't that sad? It's a non-essential. Um, length of hair. When I was in high school, uh, that was a major issue. So ironic now. Only fights my dad and I ever had was over hair. Can you imagine that? I mean, over hair. You need to go back and get your money's worth. For, you didn't get much of a haircut. Go get your money's worth. Well, at our church, it was a big deal. We're this little uh, church in New Orleans, and, and uh, we didn't want hippies in our church. So if you had hair over your ears, uh, you weren't welcome. And it's like, really? I mean, that's the issue? That's going to divide us over the gospel. Come on. We began to, a bus ministry when uh, I grew up in that church, and we had uh, African-Americans come on the bus. They quit having a bus ministry two weeks later. Really? That's the, we're going to split over that? How tragic. How tragic. Make sure, make sure that you don't make non-essentials essentials. Thirdly, there are times when we should limit our liberty. There are times we should limit our liberty. When he tells the Gentiles, he, he, he tells them, you don't have to keep the law, but... You've got Jewish brothers now. They're welcoming you into the family, and they have been taught their whole life about meat sacrifice to idols and meat with blood in it. So we're going to ask you, as brothers in Christ, refrain from these things. You have the liberty to do it, but we're going to ask you to limit your liberty. And so that became part of what they said. Now, the reality of it is that they didn't have to do that, but it was why so the Jewish brothers wouldn't stumble. The Jewish brothers had made many concessions, and so now there. Let me give you an example, a modern-day example, alcohol. 
alcohol. I mean, do the scriptures say that drinking alcohol is sinful? No. Uh, Drunkenness is sinful. The scriptures do say that. So drunkenness is sinful. Consumption of alcohol is not. But for me personally, I had something happen in my life a long time ago. A long time ago, when we were in college, I started walking with Christ, and, but we were attending a church on campus, a vibrant chapel on the campus in Baton Rouge, a vibrant college ministry. And there was a gentleman who would get up, and, and it was amazing. He, would, he was an older gentleman. Looking back now, he's probably about 40 years old. <laughs> Seemed really old when you're, six, when you're 18 years old. But, 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 I mean, he would get up, and he would quote either all of a psalm or part of a psalm. And very impressed by that. Found out he was an elder, and we met another elder in the church, and we got to know them as they spoke at a couple of things we were at. And, and one day, Bev and I went to uh, get pizza at a Mr. Gaddy's, and when we walked in, the two elders of the church were sitting there with their wives over a pizza and a pitcher of beer. Now, was it sinful for them to do that? No, it wasn't. <clears throat> I was a young, immature believer. I had struggles with alcohol when I came to faith, when I, when I started walking with Christ. I came to faith as a little kid, but I, I, I had been drinking a lot. And so when I walked in there, when I started walking with Christ, I quit. I, I didn't drink anything. I stopped, period, nothing. And so for me, it had become a personal conviction at that time. I didn't need to do that. Well, as a young, immature college kid, I walked in and I was influenced by seeing those men do that. We knew that we were headed to vocational ministry. And so, you know, I made the decision that uh, I, I would not publicly imbibe in alcohol because of my own personal experience. So, so here's how I handle that. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, I've become all things to all men. That's not a hypocritical stance of being a chameleon. He's saying, for the sake of the gospel, I'll do what needs to be done. So for me personally with alcohol, if I'm in the privacy of my home or in the privacy of your home, and uh, I I may choose to have alcohol with my meal. I may choose to have a glass of wine. If we go to Austin, I will have a glass of wine. (laughs) If we go to a nice place for dinner. Publicly here, I choose not to. Now, on rare, rare occasion, maybe four or five times in the 30-plus years we've been here, uh, we have been out, and I've gotten a coffee cup and put wine in that coffee cup in Temple, Texas. There's my confession to you. So you don't have to come smelling my coffee cup every time I'm around. But three or four times, I've done that. Okay. But the reality of it is I choose to limit my liberty because I don't want to be a stumbling block to you. I don't, we, we've got Celebrate Recovery here. A lot of our folks are recovering from addictions, and I don't want them walking in seeing their pastor. Now, Gary, you just admit it. You do it at home, and you do it at other places. You're a hypocrite. Call it what you want. I'm seeking to limit my liberty so that I will not be a stumbling block to other people. That's how I personally have chosen to handle that. The apostles say, hey, we need you to limit your liberty. Our Jewish brothers, they're doing a lot. We're going to ask you Gentiles to do certain things as well. But don't miss the essence of what's being taught here. The gospel is Jesus, not Christ plus anything. It's our Savior. It's our King who gave his life for us. So we worship him. We honor him. We adore him. And we make his name famous. And we'll travel anywhere in the world to tell people about him. Amen.
Got a video, all three hours. I couldn't tell it, nor couldn't show it, because it's too late, so I'll read you a funny. Two little kids are in a hospital, lying on gurneys next to each other outside the operating room. The first kid leans over and asks, what are you here for? Second kid says, I'm here to get my tonsils out. I'm a little nervous. First kid said, uh, you got nothing to worry about. I had that done when I was four years old. They put you to sleep, you wake up, they give you lots of jello and ice cream. It's great. It's a breeze. Second kid then asked him, what are you here for? First kid said to get circumcised. The second kid said, whoa, good luck with that, buddy. I had it done when I was born. Couldn't walk for the next year. (laughs) We leave this place making the name of Christ famous. Salvation is found in Christ and Christ alone. Amen? That's the message we take to the streets of Central Texas and around the world. Jesus. Lord, we pray this in your name, the mighty name, the only name by which men can be saved. Name of Jesus. You're here today, maybe you have exercised your liberty too liberally. Need to tighten a rain some. Maybe you have elevated non-essentials to essentials. Need to make that right. Maybe you judge other people because you have a list of rules and they don't follow your rules. Need to make that right. But more than anything else, I pray that you are trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone for eternal life. That's the most important question you can answer because there's eternal significance. What must a man do to be saved? Trust in Christ alone. We love you. Amen. Adios.